Amen. Well, tonight we'll turn in our Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And I've titled this, uh, this message, The Sign of the Wine. We know that uh, up until this point in the book of John, uh, John has written... Uh, with a with a distinct purpose to show us, as he says in John chapter twenty verse thirty one, he's written these things that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye may have life through His name. And we know that as we go and we look back in uh, John chapter one verses one through three, he, it says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so uh, we see that John, if we didn't have anywhere else in the entire Bible to show us the deity of Christ, there's enough in that Scripture right there to show us that He is indeed God. Uh, Whenever we look at that, it says He is the Word. Um, This is not what I was going to preach on, but I I just, every time I think about this, I can't help but talk about it, but whenever uh, it says that He is the Word, my thoughts that are in my head are invisible. Nobody can know what thoughts that I have until I take those invisible thoughts, form them into a sentence, and speak them, and manifest them in a physical way to where you can hear with your ears and understand what I'm saying. The same way, God is a spirit. He's invisible. Man cannot know God apart from His self-revelation to us. And as Jesus comes, He says that He is the Word. The same way I speak my words and that lets you know my mind, Jesus is God's self-revelation, the Word to us. And so uh, we see John fully established the deity of Christ here in chapter 1. And then we go on into chapter 2, and I'll pick up reading in verse number 1. It says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stones, and after a manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw now and bear the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth the good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. The beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. 
Dear Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to just uh, study your word tonight, God, and look into it, God, I pray that you would just uh, open our eyes, God, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you just come and that you'd help me, God, because I know if, uh, I, no matter what I say, God, if I stand here, my words are not going to make a bit of difference to anyone unless you carry them uh, on your wings, Holy Spirit, and just speak it to their heart, God, and I know that if, if you have your hand in it, God, even if I say one word, God, it'll be wonderful, God, so I just pray that you come and be with us and help us your people, Lord. In Jesus' precious holy name I pray. Amen. And so we see here the first point I want to look at is number one, marriage. And so uh, we see that we go all the way back into the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, and we find a marriage. Uh, we see that uh, Adam and Eve are both created, and God saw that Adam was alone, and he said, it's not good that man is alone, and so he created him a helpmeet. And God had looked out across his creation, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then whenever he saw Adam alone, he said, it's not good. But then once he created Eve to come be with Adam, he looked and he said, it is very good. And so we see from the very beginning, God created marriage and He sanctioned this as a, as a beautiful thing. And throughout the Old Testament, we see marriage as a picture of God's relationship with His people. Uh, they're not just His servants as He's their master. He's not, they're not just His subjects as He's the king. They're not just His flock as He is the shepherd. But we also see that He is their husband as He's their wife. He's the bridegroom as they're the bride. And so uh, as, as God created relationships, He created them to help us to better understand our relationship that we have with Him. Just like we have uh, parents, we have an earthly father, and my father gives me somewhat of an idea of what my relationship with God is like. Uh, you know, and, and that's a very flawed human picture, but it still gives me a way to relate to God that I wouldn't otherwise have. And so God created marriage to help us see an aspect of our relationship with Him. And so uh, Jesus, He tells us in the New Testament that the kingdom of God is likened to a marriage. Uh, we see out throughout the New Testament as well that the uh, marriage is a picture of the church's relationship with Christ. Uh, not just God the Father and, and God in the Old Testament is a picture with Israel, but Christ as a picture with His church. Uh, and not only does the Bible start with a marriage, but we see that the Bible closes in a marriage. At the end of the book of Revelation, we see uh, the marriage of the Lamb. And this is Jesus' wedding with us, His bride, His church. And so how fitting we see that it is that Jesus' first miracle that He does uh, would be at a wedding. The same way the Bible opens, the same way Jesus opens His ministry. And so uh, we see, it says, The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And so uh, as we see that the third day, as you go back throughout the, the Old Testament especially, you can see repetition of that three days, three days, three days. We know that three is a representation of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But also as we uh, look, we see Jonah is in the, the stomach of a well for three days and three nights. We see that Laban and Jacob separated their flocks a, a three days journey. Uh, you see the butcher and the baker had three days in their dream. You see over and over and over this repetition of three days. And we know that the significance of that three days is whenever Jesus 
died and he was buried, he was in the grave for three days and three nights and he rose again. But it, uh, as we look at this wedding, it says there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And so we don't know whose wedding this is. We don't know uh, how Jesus' mother Mary has a connection with them, but, but she finds herself being at this marriage and both Jesus was called and his disciples to this marriage. And so they are invited. And so uh, we see that Jesus comes and he's a part of this marriage. And whenever they wanted wine, that word wanted means that they had ran out. They, they're lacking. They don't have enough. Whenever they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. And so we don't know if she said this to Jesus in passing or if she is telling Jesus as in she wants him to do something. Uh, I think personally, and this is just speculation, I think that after Jesus has been baptized and he's been led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he comes back, she knows that his ministry is starting. She's excited. She's wanting to see a miracle. She's wanting to see some things. Uh, And so she tells him in anticipation, hoping that he will do something miraculous. But Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And don't think of this as him saying woman as in a negative way. Like if my mom asked me to do something and I said, Woman, that would not be good, you know. But Jesus is, whenever this word in the Greek is used, woman, or in the Aramaic, it would have been uh, ma'am. Or lady. We don't have an English word that translates well to it, but it's a it's a, a term of affection and a term of a term of respect. But he's saying instead of calling her mom, instead of calling her mother, he calls her woman. Because he says, in this regard, even though you're my authority, even though I respect you, this is my father's business. When it comes to my ministry, when it comes to my miracles, I'm not just going to do whatever I want to do, and I'm not just going to do what you tell me to do. Uh, And we see, you know, the Catholics elevate Mary to basically a a goddess. But we see here Jesus is telling her, What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And throughout the book of John, especially, whenever we see this term, my hour, the hour, the hour, the hour is referring to the hour that Jesus was hanging upon the cross, and it refers to the hour of His resurrection And the hour is always tied with glory. And so uh, I think that we can see as Jesus reflects on this hour, He's here at this wedding. And as He's at this wedding, I would think that just like any wedding that I've been to in my life, I always thought about one day I'll get married. I would think about my coming wedding. One day I'll have a wedding. And I'm sure every wedding that I go to from now on, I'll probably look back with memories of my wedding day. And so as Jesus is here at this wedding, I'm sure that he's looking forward, reflecting on his wedding that is to come. And so after he uh, gives this sort of rebuke to Mary, uh, we see that he says, uh, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he says unto you, do it. And so we see Mary's response is not to be upset or to be be angry, but she respects what Jesus has told her. And so we see her response is faith. And so she gives one of the best statements throughout the entire Bible, whatever He says unto you, do it. Uh, Just like I could say to every single one of you in this room tonight, whatever God says to you to do, whatever Jesus says to do, just do it. Whatever that thing may be. And it says, 
There were set six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. I got a little ahead of myself. So whenever we look at this, uh, this problem that Mary brings to Jesus, uh, the, the problem is a social crisis. Because in this time of the, uh, in this time of the culture, in the Jewish wedding, if you didn't have enough refreshments, if you didn't have enough food, and you didn't have enough uh, to go around for the feast that took place after the wedding, uh, then it was considered a disgrace. It was considered a dishonor. And so as the people um, would have been at this wedding, if they would have ran out, this would have been something that shamed this entire family. And this would have been something that they look back at for years and say, hey, do you remember when so-and-so ran out of wine at his wedding? And they would have shook their heads and said, what a disgrace to that family. And so it was a, a, a bigger deal in this day than it was to us as a marriage. But we see that Jesus, in verse 6, there was set six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And so we see that Jesus says unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. So first we see Jesus' command that he gives them. He tells them what to do, and they're going to listen just like Mary had told them to do. And so they fill the water pots, and we see their obedience. As soon as he tells them to, they go and they fill them up. And this wouldn't have been something that, uh, you know, they couldn't have hooked up a water hose and went and just poured all these full. And when it says uh, three firkins, two to three firkins apiece, this is probably about 20 to 30 gallons apiece of these big, tall water pots. And so as they go and they begin to uh, fill it up, they would have had to go to the well, get as much water as they could, bring it back, fill them up. We don't know how long this process took or anything else, but they're obedient and they fill the water and they fill them up to the very brim. And it says, uh, when the ruler of the feast had tasted it, that word uh, ruler of the feast is the same word we see the, the governor here. It's uh, archetriclinos, and it means... Uh, Basically, you think of a catering service with, with all these different servants that would work. He would be the head of all them, basically the head butler. He's the one who is orchestrating this whole thing and making sure it's going right. And so the ruler of this feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and he knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew out the water knew the governor of the feast he called the bridegroom. And so this governor, the, the head guy, he tastes this, and I'm sure his eyes light up, and he runs, and he grabs the bridegroom, and he brings him, and he's like, you know, we had that little shortage, uh, shortage of wine problem. Try this. And as the, the bridegroom tastes it, he says, every man at the beginning does set forth the good wine, and when the men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. And so there's a bunch of different stuff that I read about how uh, whenever they would take and they would load all the grapes up, all the weight of those first grapes would push uh, the juice out the bottom, and that juice that they caught in the pan at the very bottom, the servants would fight over it because that was what was considered the best wine, the, the greatest. And so as they would drink that, it would be more flavorful, and you could take it and sell it for a great sum of money. And if, they, if anyone had this great wine, they would have used it first. And then later, they would have brought out the other wine. But no matter what, what we're seeing, it was good. It was the best. It was better than what they had out there before. And Jesus has worked this miracle and turned it from water into wine. And so, all this is awesome. This is great. 
And we see Jesus' glory in this miracle. But that left me with the question, what's the point? I mean, we see Jesus throughout his ministry healing the sick. We see him taking lame people that couldn't walk and lifting them up and they can walk on their feet. We see him restoring sight to blind men. There's one part in John chapter 9 where there's a man who's blind from birth who sees and the Bible tells us that no one had ever done that. Not even the prophets or anyone could do that miracle. And Jesus does that. Why not start with that miracle? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Why not start by raising someone from the dead? Why this miracle that doesn't really heal anyone, it doesn't really help anyone, but what we see is him just averting a social crisis. And so the Lord started showing me there's more here. And as I started looking, God began to show me the significance of this miracle. So as you look in in verse number 6, it says there were six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. And so as you look at that, the purifying of the Jews, uh, when you go back to the Old Testament, uh, and I encourage you guys, I'm not going to go into it right now for sake of time, go read Leviticus chapter 15. And as you go back and you look at Leviticus chapter 15, it's going to tell you about how they were to take water and wash and be cleansed. And after they washed, they were to wait until the evening and they would be Pure. They would be cleansed. And so in the Old Testament, they have a moral law. The moral law is you don't kill anybody. You don't steal. You don't commit adultery. You don't. But whenever we see the cleanliness laws, it's a little different. Say if, if I was walking down the road and there was a dead animal and I went and I grabbed it and threw it out of the road, that dead animal's uncleanness would transfer over to me. And so then I would be unclean until I do what the law of Moses tells me that I'm supposed to do in God's sight to become clean. And this is the the law that God's gave them to know how they can come into the temple. If they come into the temple and try to worship and they're unclean, we see time and time again it does not end well. They usually end up dead. And so we see that as these people were unclean, God's given them ways to become clean. And so uh, this could go all the way down to, you know, if you had a cut on your arm and it got infected, well, that infection made you unclean. And then if somebody touched you, then they're considered unclean too. And so God gave them a rigorous set of laws and commands on how to become clean. And we can read in uh, Leviticus chapter 15 there how the water is what washes you clean. And so the Jews took this and they ran with it just as far as they could. They would build uh, basically, you know whenever you're bowling and you can put up those little bumpers and you roll down and it keeps you from getting a gutter ball? They basically did that with these laws and put up little guards to keep them from going too far any which way, to keep them from breaking these laws. And it became a superstition. And it was no longer about just being clean in the sight of God, but they had become religious. Uh, it was an excess of tradition. And that's why when we, we see here uh, the manner of the purifying, of the cleansing, which could also uh, represent washing the feet. We see that a lot in Jesus' day. Uh, as we see the purifying, they have over 
it's like 108 to 162 gallons of water that they have here. So way more than they would need. It's excess. It's, it's overkill. And we see that six, the six water pots, is a representation. That number is the number of man. And so as they are doing their rituals, they're doing their uh, religion, their superstition, they have, knowing it or not, the number of man. And so I got to thinking about how even all this purification is just a shadow of the things to come in the New Testament. You go and read the book of Hebrews. Uh, everything in the Old Testament is a shadow of Christ. It's a shadow of Jesus coming. It's a shadow of what's going to take place. Uh, the high priest is just a shadow of our great high priest, Jesus. And so we see that this uh, purification process that they had in the Old Testament is just a shadow of a purification that is going to come. And so we can see that this miracle that Jesus does is more than just turning, uh, uh, just turning water into wine for a good time. And I think there's a, a lot of things that, that people have probably preached from this passage, a lot of things that I could preach from this passage about... Uh, I've heard people say, well, it wasn't really wine, it was grape juice. or It was wine, it wasn't really grape juice. And you, but I think that that's missing the point. I think the entire point of this passage is it's a miracle of conversion. As we see, uh, the greatest miracle that Jesus does is not the miracle of healing a lame man or giving a blind man sight or uh, helping a dead man come back to life, but the real greatest miracle that Jesus does is making a spiritually blind man, opening his eyes to where he can see, taking a spiritually dead man and raising him to new life. And as we see, uh, conversion is more, of a, uh, it's more of a miracle than creation. Because in creation, God created something out of nothing. But in conversion, He takes something that's filthy and defiled and He completely transforms it into something beautiful and something new. And creation, His creation makes all things new. And so we can see how as, as a born-again person... I was filth. My garments of righteousness were as filthy rags. And He makes me clean. He makes me new. That's, that's the greatest miracle that Jesus does. And so as we look at how this conversion takes place, He turns the water into wine. And so throughout the New Testament, we see that wine is a representation of Jesus' blood. Uh, whenever he has the Last Supper and he pours the, the wine. And he says, this wine is my blood. And so he's saying, in this, he's making a statement when he converts this water into wine. He's saying that the old way, the old method of purification is being changed. You're no longer going to be cleansed by washing in the water. Whenever, uh, whenever I got saved, it wasn't because I went and I was baptized. It wasn't because I washed in the water, but it's because of the blood. And so that method of water is being changed into the method of the blood. And as we, uh, you can go back, if you want to, in, the, in Exodus chapter 7...
In Exodus chapter 7, verses 17, we see that uh, God has commanded Moses and Aaron to go and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh has hardened his heart against God and he won't obey God's command. And in verse uh, 17 it says, Thus saith the Lord, In this shalt thou know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in my hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. The fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. And the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thy hand upon the waters of Egypt, and their streams upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon their pools of water, that they may become blood. That they may be blood throughout the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood, and the vessels of stone. Did you get what these six water pots are made out of? Vessels of stone. And this is amazing because whenever we see... and There's no way that this could take place apart from the Holy Spirit orchestrating the entire Bible because it's, this is absolutely amazing to me. In the book of John, we see Jesus does seven miracles, seven sign miracles... And the first is turning the water into wine. As you go and look in Exodus, we see that God sends seven plagues upon Egypt. And the first plague that God sends is turning the water into the blood. And so, whenever we look at this, we see that Moses' miracle that he works in turning the water into blood is a curse. It's a curse upon Egypt because the water stinks. They can't drink it. It's defiled. It's, a, it's judgment coming down upon Egypt. But whenever Jesus does the miracle and turning the water into wine, representative of His blood, rather than bringing a curse upon the people, Jesus is coming and He's bringing blessing. And we look in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangeth on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's written in the law. And so, Jesus, rather than bringing a curse to us, brings blessing to us, and the means by which He does it is by being made a curse. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Who in His own self He bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, For He, God the Father, has made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so as, as Jesus is at, his, as, at this wedding and He is seeing these people fill up their cups with the wine, that He's created, that He's transformed the water into wine. And they're feeling it and they're putting the glass up to their drink and they're drinking the wine of gladness. He's thinking of His own wedding feast. And by Him drinking the cups of sorrows, by Him drinking the cup of fury and trembling and astonishment and desolation, He makes it open up to us to be able to sit 
at His feast and to be able to drink of the cup of salvation. It's because whenever He was on that cross, He took the cup of God's wrath and He drank down every last drop of it because of what He did upon that cross, because of Him shedding His blood on our behalf, we are able to go to His feast and we're able to drink of the cup of salvation. And so... I believe the significance that is found here in John chapter 2 is the, the, the miracle of conversion and the miracle of Jesus' blood. And this, this first miracle that He does foreshadows all of that in one. As we look in verse 11, it says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory, and the disciples believed. On him. Whenever, uh, whenever I was up the last, the Sunday before last in the morning, I talked about the holiness of God and how God being holy means that He is completely separate, that He's completely other than anything that we have ever imagined, that there is nothing we can compare Him to. And as Christ comes, we see the same thing manifested in Him uh, as in God the Father, that whenever we look at Him, there's nothing that we can compare Him to. As the people of Jesus' day looked at Him, there was nothing like Him, and it blew their minds. And as we see uh, glory, the the manifestation of Christ's glory that glory is just the radiant beams of that holiness shining forth from Him. And so we can see the glory, the holiness of Christ's love because His love is completely unlike anything else that we know. We can see the love of His mercy because it's completely unlike anything else that we've ever known. Same with His compassion, His righteousness. And so as He does this miracle, it says that He manifested forth His glory and the disciples believed on Him. When it says they believed on Him, if you look in the Greek, uh, that word on means into. And so these disciples that are following Him, it's not that they didn't believe in Him before. It's not that they weren't saved before. But whenever they see that this that He does, it literally means that they are submerged into belief in Him. And so as we look at Jesus and we look at the things that He's done for us and we look at the majesty of His power and we look at the blood that He shed for us and we look at what He did on the cross and we look at the glory of His person and we look at the beauty of who He is, it ought to cause us to want to come and be submerged into belief in Him. It ought to cause us to be closer to Him than we ever have been, to see Him with new eyes like we never have before and the things in our life that don't line up with this Word and line up with what He tells us and line up with what He wants for our lives. We need to be purged from it and be submerged into His love. Be submerged into Him as we view His glory. So as we take in the glory that He's manifesting, if you're lost here tonight and you've never believed into Jesus, if you've never believed on Him, if you don't know Him, I'm here to tell you tonight, God sent me here tonight to tell you whether you're online listening to me, whether you're in the back, whether you're anywhere in this church, if you can hear my voice, God has sent me an unworthy messenger to tell you that He died He shed His blood on the cross. 
He bore your sin on that cross. And if you'll but believe on Him, if you'll but put your faith and put your trust in Him, that blood that He shed will be the means of your purification. It'll be the means of your cleansing. It'll be the means of salvation to you. And so at the end of all this, just like what Darren preached whenever he preached about the marriage supper of the Lamb, whenever Jesus is standing there and His bride is standing across from Him, and God the Father looks at Jesus, and He looks at the bride, and He looks at the bride and says, Do you take Him to be your lawfully wedded husband? And all of us, the bride of Christ, are going to cry and we're going to say, Yes, I do, I do. And as Jesus looks at His bride and sees His bride, and the Father says, Do you take this to be your lawfully wedded wife? And He holds up His two nail-scarred hands and says, You already know that I do. He did all of this so that you could be there on that day and you could be standing across from Him. And as He goes and we're seated at the big table, we're all together and this thing ends with a beautiful feast. And we're all there. Because He drank the bitter dregs of sorrow, you can come and drink of the cup of salvation if you'll just call upon His name. And those of us that are saved... Let us dive deeper into Him and believe into Him. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank You tonight, God, for letting us have the opportunity to come into Your house once again, God. And I thank You for my brothers and sisters that are here, God. I thank You, God, for every single one of them and what they mean to me. And God, I thank You for Pastor Darren. And I just I love him so much. And I pray that You would just help him, God. Help him and heal him. And Father, I pray, God, that you would just take the word. You said that your word will not go out void, God, but it will accomplish what you have for it too, Father. And so I pray that you would just take this word that was spoken tonight, God. If somebody hears that needs to be saved, God, I pray you'd save them. God, we know that it's a miracle that only you can do, and it's the greatest miracle. And I pray, God, that if those of us, God, who are stagnant in our walk with you, God, help us to dive deeper into more love with you. We thank you for what you did for us, Jesus. We just praise your holy, precious name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.